0: Well, as you know, we're in John chapter 4. We're still in this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And just by way of review, the Samaritan woman is surprised. She's surprised that Jesus is talking with her because there's such animosity between these two groups, between the Samaritans and the Jews. There is racial animosity and religious animosity. The, The Samaritans, as you recall, were partially Jewish. It's probably an exaggeration to say they were half Jew, half half uh, Gentile. They were really just partially Jewish because there had been centuries of immigration and non-Jewish immigration into that region. And so they were technically of Jewish blood, but uh, there was a lot of um, intermarriage with non-Jews in that region in Samaria. They were also in a situation of religious animosity because the Samaritans only followed the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. that was called the Samaritan Pentateuch. You can see it today. But they also weaved into their worship, into their brand of Yahwehism, they weaved paganism into it because there had been centuries of idolatry there in that region when the Assyrians brought in foreign peoples with their foreign teaching in their foreign religion, there had been centuries of this idolatry and paganism that colored the brand of Yahwehism that the Samaritan, Samaritans had. So there was this tradition that the Jews didn't interact with the Samaritans, and certainly a Jewish male didn't act with, interact with a, with, a Jewish fem- with a Samaritan female, and even worse, a rabbi, which is what Jesus is, means teacher, certainly wouldn't interact with a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman. And by all means, you would never drink from the same cup as a Samaritan or a Samaritan woman. But Jesus says, I don't care about any of those things. I don't care about any of those traditions. Will you give me a drink? Jesus says to the woman, to the Samaritan woman at the well. And this starts a conversation. Jesus doesn't care about those traditions because what he cares about is opening this woman's spiritual eyes because this woman excuse me, is an unbeliever and Jesus wants her to understand her need to receive eternal life so he offers her water that is much more valuable than, than that refreshing water that she has from the well. We're in a drought. Maybe even the drought of record here in Texas, here in the hill country right now. Maybe it's worse than the drought of the 1950s. I don't know. They'll know when they when they finish it and water is huge right i mean we almost take it for granted but we turn the water on the spigot from the spigot and there it is fresh water we we can drink it it's great but water is critical to life no water no life that's from a physical standpoint and you know when you're when you're in a culture that has no running water two thousand years ago. You show up at the well. Jesus had been trapped Jesus was traveling through Judea <clears throat> up north to Galilee. So he goes through Samaria Samaria. This is just kind of background for our passage today, just a reminder. He goes through Samaria. He's on a foot journey. He's not in an air conditioned vehicle. Right? He and his disciples are traveling on foot. He's thirsty. He needs he asks for water and he needs water. Remember he's a human. He's fully man, fully God, undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. So, as a man, he needs physical water, but as God, he offers her living water, the living water of eternal life. This is what we have seen so far in John chapter 4. And one last thing by way of reminder what Jesus is doing is two things. In this conversation, He's driving towards two things. Number one, he is showing her that she's a sinner. He exposes, in other words, her need for God. He says, she asks her, "Uh, bring your husband here. He knows the answer, but the answer that she gives is, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with today is not your husband. In other words, he's exposing her sin of fornication because she's living with this, this sixth man who's not her husband. And she had been married five other times before. He's exposing her need for God. Her need. Sorry about that technology there. He's exposing her need for God. And he, the second thing that he's doing is he is dismantling her presupposition that her view, her view of God, <coughs> excuse me, is, is accurate. She wrongly thinks that her Samaritan religious doctrines are the weight of God the way of access to God the way of getting right with God so let's start with verse 20 our passage the new text for today starts in verse 22 but just by way of context let's start in verse 20 of chapter 4 there we read the Samaritan woman's words she says our fathers worshipped in this mountain She's referring to Mount Gerizim. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. When she says Mount Gerizim, remember the, the Samaritans developed a rival religion, and with their rival religion, they had a rival temple. We're not going to that temple in Jerusalem. We're not going to the temple at Mount Zion. No, we've got our own temple at Mount Gerizim the Samaritans had. And so the the Samaritans said, we're supposed to worship here. True worship is here at Mount Gerizim. And the Jews instead would worship at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Of course the answer is that the proper place of worship was in Jerusalem at Mount Zion. But Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus doesn't even get to that point. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, this is an imperative, believe me, trust me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, the you there is plural. Will y'all, Samaritans, worship the Father? Jesus is saying your presupposition that you're connected to God through your temple is incorrect. Jesus is not saying the expected thing. Right? The thing that she would have expected is... For this Jewish man who, she doesn't know he's a rabbi, he had not told her that, but it's obvious he is, she's already said, you're a prophet, I perceive you as a prophet, because he knew about her life, about these five husbands that she's already had, that she's living with this, uh, this sixth man. So she understands he's a man of God, but she doesn't understand exactly who he is, everything about him. And so Jesus doesn't say the expected thing, She expects him to say, no, the place of worship is not here in Mount Gerizim. It's in Jerusalem. She expects a duh from Jesus because that's what the Israelites understand. And that is actually what's true from the scripture. Jesus doesn't do that. He says something that is totally unexpected. He says that the centuries-long argument that's on your mind, woman from Samaritan. From Samaria, That centuries-long argument about, is it this temple in Mount Gerizim? Is it that temple in Jerusalem? It's about to become moot. I'm going to make it moot. I'm going to make it irrelevant. In law school, they have moot court. So the 2Ls and the 3Ls, the second year, and then the third years, they engage in moot court. And the judges there in moot court will be usually licensed lawyers or maybe it's a professor and so the the, the law students get up and they argue a case so they can get practice but in the end it's moot if they do poorly no one's going to go to jail because they represented their made up client poorly no one's going to lose a gajillion dollars because they represented their made up client poorly it's moot it doesn't matter That's what Jesus is saying here to the Samaritan woman. This argument that has dominated the conversation for so long between these two groups, the right answer is it's Jerusalem, but the whole argument about the proper temple, I'm about about to make it irrelevant. In fact, I'm going to make it so moot that the temple itself, where proper worship is supposed to be, in Jerusalem, I'm going to make it irrelevant to worship. And this Prophecy that Jesus is making here has borne itself out, right? Over the last 2,000 years, we could care less when it comes to worship about whether there's a temple in Jerusalem or not. The temple has not existed for almost 2,000 years, right? The Romans came in in AD 70 and destroyed the temple, and it hasn't been there since. I'm not saying we don't care whether there's a temple there. I mean, I, I, it, it'd be interesting. But worship is not there in Jerusalem, and it hasn't been for 2,000 years. Jesus' prophecy has been borne out by history over the last 2,000 years. What he's saying is that his hour, remember he talks about an hour, an hour is coming where worship's not going to be there or here. The hour that he's referring to, as we saw last time, is a reference to his hour. It's a reference To his glorification. It's a phrase that is used frequently in the book of John, my hour. He said it to his mother in John chapter 2, my hour has not yet come. Meaning his glorification, which was his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, which glorified Jesus as the Son of God. That hour would usher in a new age, would close the age that was then in existence and would usher in a new age. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says the, the hour is coming. It's an hour that would make the temple in Jerusalem where, yes, proper worship is, was to be. But it would make that temple obsolete because this age that Jesus would bring about, the church age, would make the temple in Jerusalem irrelevant when it comes to worship. These words would be an anathema shocking, offensive to the Jewish mind. I mean, the temple, what? You're going to make the temple irrelevant? Those are fighting words. This is why at the trial of Jesus, remember in Matthew, at the trial of Jesus, Matthew 26, 27-ish, at the trial of Jesus, they can't find any witnesses. So they bring in false witnesses. They bring in a man who says, Jesus said, I can destroy this temple and rebuild it. That was false witness, actually. That was a false testimony because he didn't say that. Remember in John 2, when he tears down, when he, when he, when he runs off the money changers and he turns over the ta- tables, what did he say? He said, you destroyed this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He didn't say, I destroyed this temple. He was talking about his, his body the temple of his body. That would be the new temple, the new locus of worship, the new location of worship through Jesus. My point is the the idea that the temple would become irrelevant to worship was something that was unthinkable to the Jews. And so that's why the Pharisees, that's why the Sanhedrin drum up this false testimony from someone who comes in and says Jesus said he was going to tear down the temple that's not what he said he said you tear down this temple meaning kill me and I'll be resurrected in three days but they drum up that false testimony to inflame the jury what a a lawyer is looking for before the jury is something that will get them all juiced up so they rule in favor of him At, at least that's a lawyer who's manipulating a jury Well, they had lawyers the same way back then, right? So they bring in a lawyer to inflame the jury. When I say the jury, I mean the Sanhedrin who are the judge and the jury. Because what? We have a witness here that says that Jesus is going to tear down the temple. Again, false testimony. This whole concept was foreign and unthinkable to the Jews. Jesus' words are subversive and revolutionary, but they're the truth as evidenced By the last 2,000 years, Jesus is saying His hour, His glorification, which is His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension will change everything. They will usher in a new order. And Warren Wiersbe is right when he observes that so far in the book of John, the Apostle John has been giving us aspects of the new order. Right? In John 1, 29, we see a new sacrifice when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We don't need the bulls and the goats and the sheep for the sacrifices anymore. We have a new sacrifice, capital S. Or in John chapter 2, where Jesus says, John chapter 2, verse 19, where Jesus says, y'all destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. We have a new sacrifice. We have a new temple, which is Jesus himself. Or in John chapter 3, we have a new birth. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Or in John chapter 4, where we are this morning, we have new water, living water, because Jesus' hour is ushering in the dawning of a new age, the church age, something that was a mystery, something that God concealed from the prophets. Concealed from Moses. Concealed in the Old Testament. And so it was a mystery, something that was unknown. Now there is a time when there will be a temple again. Two ages from when Jesus is speaking. Right? Jesus is in the age of Israel when he's speaking. Excuse me, he's in the age of Israel. He says, my hour is coming. His hour will usher in a new age. That's the church age. Then once the church age is completed, there will be another age, which is when Messiah returns and He reigns for a thousand years. That's the language of Revelation 20. A thousand years is mentioned six times in Revelation 20. He will reign for a thousand years, and the prophet Ezekiel tells us that there will be a temple again in the millennial reign. Now, that t- temple will play a part in worship, but it's not been a change. Jesus' hour created something that came into effect at His glorification and is forevermore, which is that worship is now centered in and through Jesus. Although there will be a millennial temple, it will play a role, but Jesus will be the focus because, of course, He will be living in Jerusalem for a thousand years. A new order is what Jesus is referring to, where everything will be different when it comes spirituality and worship. Then we get to our passage for today in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. That's you plural. Y'all worship, Jesus says. Well, he wouldn't. he's not from Texas, so you know, maybe he would say you all. You all worship what you all do not know. You Samaritans. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Here Jesus is dismantling her presupposition about God and he is not mincing words. Jesus is not concerned with the 11th commandment. You know it, right? You've you've heard the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. And truth is compromised because you must be nice. You know, some people say, Oh, I can't believe you said that. Well, but was it true? I'm not saying that we should be rude. Jesus is not rude here. He's been very polite to this woman. I'm saying that we have a responsibility to speak the truth and to not mince words because eternal destinies are at stake. This woman's eternal destiny is at stake. So Jesus does not come in with some sort of pusillanimous presentation of the truth. He says it clearly. You don't know what you're talking about. That's just what he says. He says three things. You... The Samaritans are wrong about your understanding of God. We, the Jews, are right about our understanding of God. And the third thing he says is that salvation is from the Jews. Let me talk about each one of those. The Samaritans are wrong about who God is. They had a false view of God. They worshipped a God who did not exist. This is counterfeit false worship. As I said earlier, they followed the first five books of the Bible, but they injected a paganistic, a paganized view of God. They weave that into their worship because of the syncretism. Syncretism is, is amalgamating, is, 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 is weaving things together. They had religious syncretism. Number one, they didn't have the rest of the... They rejected, consciously rejected the rest of the Hebrew Scripture, so they only had the first five books, It's not that there's anything wrong with the first five books. It's just there was a lot more revealed about God. And even with those five books, they had weaved paganism and idolatry into their worship. You see, it matters what we believe. That matters. Being a man of God, being a woman of God, is not enough. Let me say that differently. I said that wrong. Being a woman of faith is not enough. Being a man of faith is not enough. You need to be a man of faith in God. You need to be a a woman of faith in God. The object of your faith matters because faith in someone or something other than the living God is worthless. In fact, it's worse than worthless. It's idolatrous. Because when you have faith, when you trust in something other than the living God, what you've done is you've made that thing or that person Higher than the true living God. And so that is an act of idolatry. And idolatry is something that God does not tolerate. Let me change microphones here for a moment. So, what you have faith in matters. Simply having faith in faith is insufficient. This is what Jesus is teaching here. He says, the object of your faith, your perception of God, is false. Your understanding of God is inaccurate. Is she sincere? Yes. But she's sincerely wrong. And so, the truth of God is essential to know and to trust in. His first comment to her is that the Samaritans are wrong about who God is. Her second comment, his second comment is, we Jews are right about who God is. God entrusted the Jews with his word, with his revelation, so that through them all the nations would be blessed. That's Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, right? When God says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God entrusted Israel with the word of God. He didn't trust the Brits or the Africans or the Asians or the Scandinavians with his word. He trusted a specific part of the Semitic line of the the Semitic peoples. He trusted Israel with it. Which takes us to the third point that Jesus is making. That salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is not saying that all Jews were or are or will be saved. He's not saying that. There are plenty of unbelieving Jews in the Gospel of John and throughout the generations. Jesus is saying that from a human perspective, salvation originates from the Jews, right? God used the Jews to record His Word. Every author, as we've studied before, every human author of this book is a Jew, except for Luke, And where does Luke get his information? From a Jew. From the Apostle Paul. The only other exception is Job. And Job, we believe, wrote before Abraham even lived. So every human author through which you have access to the Word of God is Jewish other than Luke and possibly Job. The Savior of the world is Jewish. The Apostles through whom you have information about the way of salvation, through Jesus the apostles, Jewish, all of them. Salvation is from the Jews. That means from a human perspective, it originates through Israel. Paul describes the Jews' special relationship with God in Romans 9. There he explains that God designed the Jews to be his vessels, his vessels. With divine responsibilities as the guardians and the communicators of God's word. And along with that responsibility came great privileges. Romans nine, verse four, reads like this. There Paul describes his Jewish brethren as Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of son as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Paul is saying that the Jews are the special people created and called by God. That's what he means by adopted as sons. They had the special presence of God, the glory. He he refers to glory here. He's talking about the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is the Hebrew word that means that which dwells. Remember, the Shekinah dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant, over the, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant between the two cherubs. The Shekinah dwelt in the tabernacle. This God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But His special presence was among Israel to show His blessing to them as, a, as a, almost like a, like a guard for Israel because Israel was called for a special purpose. So Paul says, they're adopted as sons, created, called by God. They had have, they have the Shekinah glory who dwe- which dwelt among them. The Jews had God's covenants. You see the word covenants here that Paul uses. These are the special promises from God. Covenant just means contract. And, and a contract is just a promise. It can be a unilateral promise. I promise to mow your yard. That's a unilateral covenant. I didn't ask you to pay me 20 bucks. When we were kids, we had a lawn business. We had our little flyers. 20 bucks. Corner lot, a little more. All right? But that's a a bilateral covenant. I mow your yard, you pay me 20 bucks. That's bilateral. Both parties have an obligation. Some of the the covenants are unilateral. God's just going to do something. I'm just going to come in and mow your yard. You you have no obligation to pay me 20 bucks. The covenants are given by God, like the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral. God's going to perform it. Mosaic covenant, bilateral. But the point is, Paul says that Israel has the covenants. The covenants were given to Israel. The special promises of God were given to Israel. They were adopted as sons, created as a nation. They had the Shekinah glory which dwelt among them. The covenants they received, and they received the law. You see the word law here in verse 4. Now we, being in the age of grace, oriented to the grace of God, sometimes we think law e mm, bad. Grace bad good. Don't think that way. There's nothing wrong with the law. It was from God. God didn't give the law to Israel to punish them. It was a gracious gift from God. And at the core of law, that's the Hebrew word Torah. At the core of, of the, the, the meaning of Torah, it means instruction. Instruction. As my seminary prophet used to say it, it's God's pointed finger pointing to the way of salvation. It's pointing to the way of salvation and sanctification. These are blessings that God gave to Israel because He called them separately. To use the old King James language, He made them a peculiar nation, separate from the rest, because He called them to be His vessel with His word. Look at verse 5 from Romans chapter 9. Paul says, And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. Now Paul's talking about race. Paul is saying that his brethren, Paul himself, who was a Jew, and the, his fellow brethren are racial descendants of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham has a son, or many sons, but the son that's, that's in view here is Isaac. And then his grandson, Jacob, Abraham's grandson. God gave the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham and then he repeats it to Isaac and then he repeats it to Jacob and the Jews are descendants, racial descendants from those patriarchs. That's what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the fathers. But not just racially related to the patriarchs, they're racially related to Christ. Right, some people say, hey, I'm racially related to you know, someone who fought in the, in the Texas Revolution. Or in the American Revolution. Or I'm, I'm related to someone in Europe. And you know, that, that's, a, that's a big deal to them. And, 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 and they, they find a sense of pride because that person who they're related to did something amazing. Well, the Jews are related to the Savior of the world. You can't get more amazing than that. This is what Paul is saying. Incredible calling that the Jews have because the Jews have the keys humanly speaking to salvation because salvation comes from the Jews that's what Jesus is saying from a human perspective salvation originates from and through the Jews then in verses 23 and 24 Jesus will finish his explanation as to why this argument over temples locations of temples is about to become moot He's going to explain what true worship looks like. Look at verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship worship in spirit and truth. There is so much packed into this passage in these two verses. Number one. In Jesus' hour, He says, His glorification is certain to come. He says two conflicting things, right? He says, the hour's coming, and now is. Well, which is it, Jesus? Is it coming, or is it here? And Jesus says, yes. Yes. Jesus is using a figure of speech, which is called the prolepsis. He's speaking proleptically. It's kind of like when the man on death row walks out of his cell down the hall to the place of execution, they say, dead man walking. He's not dead, he's walking. He's, he's alive. But his execution is so certain that it is as is, is if you can, it's permissible to speak of it in the present tense. Dead man walking. Jesus is speaking proleptically Because his hour of glorification is so certain to occur, it's as if it is now. He can speak of it in the presence. This is the hour that he's talking about. His glorification, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Jesus' glorification will bring about the end of the age of Israel. That's the second thing that I want you to, to see in verses 23 and 24. He's going to bring about the end of the age of Israel. He's going to make the temple in Jerusalem irrelevant when it comes to worship. How is he going to do that? Because he's going to remove Israel. He's going to end their age. He's going to remove her divine responsibilities. He's going to remove her divine privileges and he's going to give divine responsibilities and divine privileges to a new entity to the church. Not the same responsibilities. Not the same privileges. Different privileges, different responsibilities, but there are many similarities. Now as soon as I say that Jesus is going to end the age of Israel, I need to be clear. He's going to end it temporarily. Temporarily. We know from other passages that Christ will reinstate Israel's privileges and responsibilities at his second coming. So Israel's time will come again in Christ's millennial reign, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I don't want to forget to mention that her end is not permanent. It's just a temporary end during the church age. But that's not what Je- Jesus... doesn't say any of that here. You have to go to other passages to find that truth. What Jesus is focusing on here is that Israel is about to be removed As I said earlier, this concept would have been unthinkable. Remember, he's he's having a conversation with with a Samaritan. There are no Jews around other than himself. The disciples aren't there right now. They're going to show up soon, but they're not there right now. He's having this conversation with a Samaritan, and the idea in a Jewish mind that the temple and that Israel would be removed was revolutionary and unthinkable. Actually, it's even difficult for a Samaritan to think of because... Judah's been there. Israel's been in place for all of these generations. From our perspective, Israel has been set aside, temporarily, but set aside. And we, the church, have been elevated with divine privileges and divine responsibilities. We don't replace Israel, but we have the place of privilege now. And what I fear is that we, as Christians, our response is, ah, boring. That that is our response to the divine privileges and the divine responsibilities that God has given to us in this age through God in the flesh's glorification through His hour. Our response is ho hum. You do that at your great peril. If that is your response, repent. Repent. Don't think that way. Confess the sin. Because God has given you great privileges. And tick, tock, tick, tock goes the clock. I don't know when it's over. When the last Gentile walks through the door of faith and God closes the church age, Christ returns to take his church home Then your time to exercise the privileges and the responsibilities that God has given you in this elevated position is over. And our age will end. And then God will elevate the church, excuse me, will elevate Israel again to her privileged position. So don't waste your time by failing to take the advantages, like the hymn said from Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. The Spirit and the gifts are ours, not for our own self-aggrandizement, not to, to, to stroke our egos, but to serve God's people because time is ticking. Time is short. In the church age, which Jesus is referring to, worship will no longer be at a particular location on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It will be worldwide, everywhere. Not just at the Jerusalem temple. And this brings up the question, what is worship? Which is really at the core of this woman's comments. Remember back in verse 20, she says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So the third thing that I want you to see from these verses here in verses twenty. 3 and 24, what I want you to see is that Jesus' glorification will transform what worship looks like. In these two verses, Jesus is saying that true worship is worshiping God in spirit and truth. When Jesus says something, you should take note. It's important. You should listen up. But when he says it twice, you should really, really listen up. He uses that phrase twice. Once in verse 23, once in verse 24. Worship in spirit and truth. It's the Greek phrase, in numati kai aletheia. In spirit and truth. It's two nouns, numati aletheia, numati spirit, aletheia, truth, joined with one preposition, epsilon nu, n, en, en numati kai aletheia. In spirit and truth. In other words, spirit and truth are controlled by this preposition, in. You can't have one without the other. Worship requires spirit and truth. This is what Jesus is saying. Both of those nouns are governed and controlled by the introductory preposition, in. This is so important. It's so important because if you have what you think is worship, and it's in spirit but not in truth, then it is false worship. Worship without doctrinal truth is just feel good. It's just an emotional experience where the person gets all juiced up. Yeah, I'm, I come to church, to, to church for an emotional experience. I'm all juiced up. But they know nothing of God. And it is detached from the truth of God. That's not worship, is what Jesus says. Because you must worship Him, him in truth and spirit, both. And the other way around. Worship that is in truth but not in spirit is also false worship. Right? We don't come to church. We don't study the Word of God, whether it's, it's on the radio or it's at home. You don't study the Word of God so that you can learn academic knowledge. Look at me. I know so much about the Bible. I'm so knowledgeable I don't know if you know, but I know a lot about the Bible. I mean, that's the attitude. That's worship in truth, but without in spirit. You need both. And often, worshiping in truth, but, without in, but, but not in spirit. Not in the power of the spirit. And you can't, you're not in the, fello, in, in the filling of the spirit, unless you've confessed your sins. Remember what, what David said. If I regard iniquity in my heart, or the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Or our New Testament version, John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's important to walk in fellowship. We must engage in worship that is in truth and in spirit. Both. So let me talk about in a little more detail what worshiping in spirit looks like. Worshiping in spirit is humans communing with God. Worshiping in spirit is supernatural. It's spectacular. It is the human of flesh communing with the divine. There is so much that Jesus is revealing just in this little phrase in spirit and truth Humans are made of flesh, but God is spirit, Jesus says in verse 24. God's essence is spirit. He is immaterial. So in the Hebrew scriptures, like in 1 Samuel, where you read that God's hand was heavy on the Philistines. In other words, his hand pulled back to strike the Philistines. That's words of accommodation. He doesn't have a hand because he's immaterial. It's words that we may understand that God's judgment on the Philistines was severe. When God says that Israel is the apple of my eye, it's not literal. Those are words of accommodation because God doesn't have an eyeball. He doesn't have a retina. They're words to describe that God cherishes his special people Israel because they are called for a special purpose, which is to communicate his word. I, I grant you they're in rebellion right now, but they haven't always been in the past, and they will not be when Christ institutes his thousand year reign. Humans are flesh, God is spirit, and so there is this great gulf that separates us a great separation between the two. We are born physically alive, flesh, but spiritually dead. So, something, or better said, Someone is needed to unite flesh and spirit. Someone is needed to bridge the gap. Flesh cannot commune with spirit unless someone steps in to unite flesh and spirit. God became man. Flesh cannot commune with spirit unless someone steps in to remake flesh. Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. He says you must be born of the spirits. This is why Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 6 says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is spirit. Because God has stepped in to unite flesh and spirit, to unite human and divine. When a person is spiritually reborn by accepting Christ's spiritual gift, of eternal life spiritual life the person communes with God through the person's human spirit because now we're spiritually alive we're born physically alive but spiritually dead dead men walking dead women walking physically alive spiritually dead and it is not until we accept the free gift of living water eternal life that to use the old King James, our spirit is quickened. So that's the, that's an old, old, old English word to me to, to mean made alive. Our spirit is made alive, and so then in eternal, when we are saved, we receive eternal life, and we are, we our human spirit can commune with God, who is by essence spirit. Here's the fascinating thing: this communion between flesh and the divine between a human and God by being reborn by having the spirit quickened made alive the human spirit that is this can happen anywhere any time any place any time the implications of this are huge huge you can worship God regardless of your location Jesus is saying on this mountain or that mountain it's irrelevant you can worship God Regardless of where you are, you can worship God regardless of your activity as long as you are in communion with God, which is to say, number one, you have to have accepted Christ, the eternal life that Christ gives, not your spiritual, spiritual life. But even after you're spiritually alive, sometimes we wander away from God and we wander back to the pig pen, which is where we came from. So we have to confess our sins and then we return to fellowship. And so as long as you are in communion in union with God to be a little more precise salvation is union and then fellowship with him sanctification is communion I'm using the words a little loosely but as long as we're in union first being saved and in communion thereafter walking with God being in fellowship then your activity is worship you could be changing a baby's diaper and that's worship you could be walking your dog and that's worship you could be teaching kids mathematics, and that's worship. You could be teaching a Bible study, and that's worship. You could be sitting there listening to the teaching of the Word of God, and that's worship. So long as you're in communion with God. This is the, the union, the communion between flesh and the divine. Something incredible that Jesus is revealing here. Something that I fear we take far too casually. We as church age believers are now God's vessels. Israel is no longer God's vessel to, communi- to guard God's word and communicate God's word. We're not God's vessel to record God's word. That's already been done. God used Israel to do that before he ended her age, temporarily ended her age. But today, we are God's vessels. I hope you're telling people about the Word of God. I hope you don't just come to church and study the Word of God and say, I'm a hoarder. I hoard it all for myself. No, you need to be communicating the Word of God. Do it in love, but speak the truth in love. That's what Paul says. We have this incredible responsibility and privilege As God's vessels, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the divine responsibility to be the guardians and the communicators of His Word, and we have many divine privileges associated with that. God has given us this huge, huge responsibility today, an opportunity today. It is something that we should not take lightly. As I said before, I am not saying that the church is Israel. The two separate entities, nor am I saying that church-age believers have the same privileges or the same divine responsibilities as Israel. They don't. They're different, but there are many similarities. The other thing that I want you to see here in this passage, we've been talking about what is worshiping in spirit. The other thing I want you to see is what is worshiping in truth, because those are the two elements that Jesus says that are needed for worship Worshiping in truth, again, takes us back to the one who bridges the gap between humanity and God. John tells us that Jesus is the Word of God, incarnate, right? John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John tells us that Jesus is truth, incarnate. John recorded Jesus' words in John 14.6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. We've heard that verse so many times. And so I fear that it goes in one ear and out the other ear. That verse is saying Jesus is truth in the carne. That is what incarnate means. It comes from the Latin. Carne. You know, we say chile con carne, right? Carne means, can mean meat. In Spanish it means meat. But it also means flesh. Because they just borrow it from the Latin. And we get from the Latin... Carne, we get incarnate in the flesh. Jesus is truth in the flesh. So you can't worship God unless it is through truth in the flesh. Unless it is through Jesus. Remember what Jesus said at the end of John chapter 1, when he's talking to Nathaniel, he says, I'm Jacob's ladder. I am the ladder. You will see on the Son of Man the angels of God ascending and descending. Jacob had that dream back in Genesis, a dream that he saw heaven and earth united by a ladder and angels coming up and down. Jesus says, I'm that ladder that Jacob dreamed about. Jesus is the access to God. God is truth exclusively. Truth isn't squishy, absolute truth is absolute. When you hear that phrase, tell me about your truth, I hope you cringe. When you hear the phrase, your truth, my truth. No, truth is truth. I don't care about your truth. I care about the truth. Jesus is of the truth. The reason our culture is so flexible with truth is because we have rejected the person who is truth, who is Jesus. Worshiping in spirit and in truth is what Jesus says is essential to have true worship. Now, one thing I need to be clear about is Jesus is not suggesting that His glorification, His hour, is the first thing that brought about true worship. He's not suggesting that there was zero true worship in the Old Testament. He's not saying that Moses didn't have true worship, that David didn't have true worship, that Isaiah, that the prophets didn't have true worship. He's not saying that at all. True true worship, of course, existed in the Old Testament as well. All of those groups, the prophets... Moses, David, they worship God in spirit and in truth as God was revealed to them. But their worship was tied to a location. Their worship was was tied to the presence of the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle. That was the the, the place where their worship was focused at the tabernacle. Remember, tabernacle is just a sophisticated tent. But then when the tabernacle, when they stop using the tabernacle and Solomon builds the temple, again the Shekinah dwells there in the temple. So their worship is focused at the temple. What Jesus is saying is that's gone because I'm going to make the temple irrelevant when it comes to worship in the age to come. Jesus is ushering in the church age where worship will be untethered to a physical structure the last thing that I want you to see from verses 23 and 24 is something that is one of the many fascinating things of God look at the phrase in verse 23 for such people the father seeks to be his worshipers. you see that in verse 23 such people the father seeks to be his worshipers. this is fascinating the God of the universe who needs nothing. The God of the universe who is completely self-sufficient seeks you. Seeks you. He seeks worshipers. He needs nothing out from, uh, other than himself, outside of himself. He needs nothing. But out of his great love and mercy and grace, he seeks you. We who are utterly unlovable, He seeks us. We who are sinners, this is something that is most incredible. God has hardwired every human being to worship Him. But because of sin, our worship is crooked. Our worship is perverted. Our worship is misdirected. Because of sin, we worship that which we don't know when we're Wandering off from God. When we're rebelling against God. We worship that which we shouldn't and we fail to worship that which we should. Because sin has made us crooked and bent. The Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And proskuneo means to have absolute dependence on someone. It means to have complete submission to someone. And so God has designed every human being To have absolute submission to Him. To have absolute dependence upon Him. You see, human beings are the only part of God's creation that the Scripture describes as being made in His image. Not the buck, not the giraffe, not the hog, not the tree, not the sun. Not even angels are described as being made in His image. You are. He's designed you for communion with Him. We rebelled. When Adam rebelled, we rebelled. And so what God is doing is He is recreating. He's ushering in a new order, a new age. That's what Jesus is doing. The reason we squander our lives, the reason we fritter away our lives is because we fail to, I said no, we don't fail. We refuse to submit to God's design for worship. In our great pride and arrogance, we refuse to worship God. We refuse to put his word first. We refuse to put his ways first. We refuse to put his priorities first. We refuse to put his interest first. And so it makes sense. It's only logical that the one who rejects God is joyless. You know, some people are named Joy. I can think of a particular person named Joy who's on the news sometimes. And they're not very joyous. God has designed us for joy. God has designed us for communion and fellowship with Him. And if we will obey Him, we will find joy in that place. Finally, as we close today, I want to focus on the last two verses of our passage. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. The woman probably is not tracking the intricacies of Jesus' words here. The delicacies of Jesus' words. The depth of theology of Jesus' words. She's probably not tracking all that and so she's saying, Look, I know Messiah is coming. And he's going to work all this stuff out. I know Messiah is coming, and he's going to take care of all this when Messiah comes. You see, the the Samaritans believed in Messiah. Messiah is prophesied in the Pentateuch. He's prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. Moses' prophecy that a prophet would come, a prophet like him would come. So the Samaritans believed in the coming of Messiah. Then in verse 26, Jesus blows her away. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally in the Greek, it is I am, ego emi, the one talking to you. Jesus gives her two statements. I am Messiah and I am God. He is claiming the name of God. Ego emi, I am. This is the name that she would have remembered Because what happens in Exodus, in Exodus 3, when Moses is quaking in his sandals and God tells him, you go to to Egypt and you tell my people, there are millions of them, there are millions of Israelite Israelite slaves under Pharaoh, you tell them to pack their bags and tell Pharaoh, adios, we're leaving. And Moses is like, whoa. You know, he's off in Midian, shepherding sheep. Who am I? Who do I tell them sent me to tell them this news. And God says in Exodus 3, you tell them I am sent you. That's my name. I am. This is the name that Jesus claims right here. Ego in me. I am. The one who is speaking to you. He's not saying I'm just the guy standing here. She already knows that. I am means much more. I am is a claim of deity. Jesus crescendos this Conversation with a declaration of his messiahship, that he is the Christ, that she is saying, oh, he's going to come. I am him, he says. And he says, and oh, by the way, I'm actually God. This is the declaration that Jesus was called to give because Jesus made his way through Samaria to that well. There are other wells in Samaria. He made his way to that well because Jesus was on a divine errand He's there by divine appointment. Remember, he's not just God, he's man. Fully God, fully man. And as a man, God moved him. God had a divine appointment for Jesus to be thirsty, to be at that well, to ask that woman for a drink so that he could open her spiritual eyes. At first she thought he was talking about H2O, When he says, I offer you living water, I want some of that water because I don't want to have to come back to this well. I want some of that magic mojo water. I don't like having to work here. I don't want to have to keep coming back to the well every day to get water. We don't have running water. She doesn't understand until now that Jesus is talking about living water, eternal life, because God in the flesh is speaking with her and asked her for a drink. This is the moment, as these verses will unfold, we close this moment, this service this morning, so we can't see those verses this morning, but this is the moment where this enemy of God, which is what we all are before we come to Christ, this enemy of God will become one of his daughters, and her eyes will be opened. If there's anybody here today who has not had their eyes opened, today's the day. If there's anybody here today who is without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, today's the day. Make no mistake, you are the enemy of God. I'm not here to suck up to you. I'm here to tell you the truth. I love you too much to lie to you. I love you too much to candy coat it. You are the enemy of God if you have not accepted Christ, subject to his fierce wrath on the death train. And yet he loves you. You are subject to His wrath, and yet He loves you. He's not just a God of judgment and wrath. Make no mistake, He is that. But He's also a God of mercy and love and compassion who longs for you, who seeks true worshipers. And in His great mercy, He paid for your sins. He came to pay a debt that He didn't owe because you owed a debt that you couldn't pay. And all you have to do is trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, and you stop being His enemy and you become His daughter or His son, the child of God. Like that. Like that. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They didn't say, I want you to join a church. They didn't say, I want you to go give a bunch of money to a church. They didn't say I want you to stop doing this and stop doing that and then I want you to do this and I want you to do this and, I, and, and then after you do all those things I want you to trust in Christ. That's not what they said. They said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's it. That's it. God made it so easy for you. Incredibly painful for him. For his son who gave everything for you. Who gave his life for you. But easy for you because he loves you. He made it that way in grace. We'll see more of the Samaritan woman next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your sovereignty, for your power, for your love, for your mercy. We thank you that you seek us, though we don't deserve it. We praise you for all these things. We approach you in awe and wonder because of this. We fear you and yet we love you. We praise you for who you are, for what you have done and for what you will do for us. We thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that he is the means of salvation and nothing else. And we also pray in this time that we are in today, we ask that you give us rain. You know that we need it, Father. We need it desperately. We ask that you shower it upon us because we are in need and we cry out to you And express to you our needs. We don't go to anybody else for that. We know that it is within your power. And we ask that you do it. We know the weatherman doesn't say it's coming. But we ask that you bring it. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.